We are looking at the concept of systematic theology, and this initial study is going to serve as something of an introduction to what systematic theology really is and why it is important for us to talk about uh, systematic theology and systematic theology in relationship to maybe some of the other disciplines of study that are out there. Um, but I thought it would be good uh, for us to quickly visit uh, what are the presuppositions of systematic theology? Well, depending on who's teaching or uh, what textbook you're reading, uh, that will sort of determine what the presuppositions of systematic theology are going to be. Different schools of theology are going to be coming from different schools of thought and different um, different Christian traditions, if you would, denominations, are going to come from a different uh, point of view with dealing with the subject of systematic theology. And regardless of what tradition one is coming from, let's say, for example, a Presbyterian or a Baptist tradition, uh, as long as uh, it pertains to evangelical doctrine, uh, or maybe even more specifically, essential doctrines, historic doctrines of the Christian faith, um, all systematic theology will be done uh, with a total commitment uh, to the Word of God. And so maybe let's just dive right into some of these assumptions, and um, it might be good for us to establish what are those theological perspectives that will really define the way that systematic theology is pursued. This is where a person's presuppositions will matter really more than anything. It will determine how theology is approached. Here are some of the commitments that undergird my personal theological parameters, my personal theological underpinnings, and where I'm coming from what will inform and what will guide the manner in which I will pursue the study of systematic theology. Uh, first of all, let me say that uh, my, my systematic theology is done from an evangelical, thoroughly evangelical perspective. And when I say evangelical, that is to say, of course, that I am commit, committed to the historic doctrines of the Christian faith and that I am committed to the gospel of free grace that I am also committed to such essential Christian markers as Trinitarianism and uh, a view of the doctrine of Scripture, let's say, that is completely uh, devoted to the doctrine of inerrancy, believing that the Word of God is inerrant, that is to say that the Word, when it was written down for man, was written without any errors and that, in a sense, the inerrant Word of God has been preserved for us in the multiplicity of textual manuscripts that are out there. And I also believe in the infallibility of the Word of God. So maybe a second characteristic of Scripture here. But I also believe that Scripture is the infallible Word of God. That is to say that it is authoritative, that it is the final word for uh, for all faith and practice for the Christian faith. And I also believe along evangelical lines that salvation is by grace through faith. And so the way that we're going to pursue systematic theology 
is from a thoroughly evangelical perspective. And second of all, not only am I coming from an evangelical perspective, but also from a reformed perspective. Now, when you say reformed, uh, obviously there's a deep Reformation tradition that goes along with that. Um, A Presbyterian can refer to being reformed and he will mean uh, something that possibly I won't mean, especially when it gets down to the Lord's Supper and and uh, uh, the, the the vision or the um, the theology, the philosophy of ecclesiology. We may differ on those types of things, but when I say reformed, that is to say that I am committed. Let's say on a basic level, committed to the solas of the Reformation, the five solas of the Reformation. I'm committed to also the doctrines of grace or Calvinism. All of these different doctrines and even the different points that we've pointed out, even about the nature of Scripture, will be tackled more in depth and greater specificity as we go on. But also then, coming from a Calvinistic perspective, um, I definitely uh, subscribe to the five, what's known as the five points of Calvinism. I definitely subscribe to uh, a high view of the sovereignty of God. And uh, maybe just on a personal note, when it comes to Calvinist theology, or maybe even broader, when it comes to the Reformed tradition, uh, John Calvin is definitely my favorite theologian. Um, That's not because Calvinism came from him, but I thoroughly enjoy Calvin, and I, I do think he is... Uh, he is the best at giving you uh, a biblical uh, view of God that is transcendent and majestic and rich and full, so that in Calvin you have this pristine blend of both light and heat, of mind and heart. And so I love Calvin uh, for that reason, along with many other theologians of the Reformed Tradition. Also, then when I mean Reformed, I'm also talking about uh, a specific hermeneutic that applies to Scripture. And that is to say that when I come to Scripture, I am coming to Scripture on the basis of what's known as the analogy of the faith, the analogia fide. That is to say that I subscribe to what the Reformers taught about the, the undergirding reality, hermeneutical reality that Scripture interprets Scripture, that Scripture is its own interpreter. And uh, as the hymn goes, God is his own interpreter, but Scripture is the way that Scripture interprets itself as well. So those are some of the foundational uh, presuppositions that will guide my study of systematic theology. Um, Probably also um, some other fair uh, disclosures would probably be the theological camps that are out there. And here I'm talking more or less along the lines of what's known as the difference between covenant theology, dispensational theology, and new covenant theology. Um, There's kind of a spectrum on that where I would definitely be fall in line more with the covenantal scheme of looking at the Word of God. And the reason why these types of things are important, maybe don't have time to get into all of those things right now, but 
But just um, when you're talking about covenant theology versus dispensational theology, let's say, for example, and also new covenant, but, but just in terms of those two camps, you're really looking at issues that deal with continuity versus discontinuity and how you interpret testament to testament and covenant to covenant. That is old covenant to new covenant, Old Testament to New Testament. Covenantal theologians tend to see more the theological camps um, often tend to um, ostracize one another dealing with those exact issues of over-continuity or uh, under-continuity. And so I'm coming from more covenantal side of things, but that doesn't mean that I agree with everything that is represented, let's say, in covenant theology. Uh, but that is to say that I do find more of a general continuity, uh, let's say, of issues dealing with the gospel and soteriology and the people of God. Um, that is a obviously a course and an issue and a topic that's sort of a discussion in and of itself. Well, moving on, probably the next thing um, would be the issue of um, the charismatic uh, gifts or the gifts um, versus uh, the, 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 the whole debate, rather, discussing either the continuity or the continuation or the cessation of spiritual gifts. Now, I'm coming from a more of a partial cessationist position where I do believe things like apostles and prophets have ceased, but probably also uh, some of the other sign gifts, for example, tongues and, and uh, uh, foretelling prophecy of the future, also, uh, also in terms of gifts of healing, where um, I don't believe that there is anyone going around today that possesses the gift of healing, uh, so that if you are sick or if you have a problem, then we need to find the person with the gift of healing. He'll come over to your house or to the hospital and pray for you and you will be healed. So certainly, definitely, the cessation of apostolic signs of healings and prophesying and things like that, that would be sort of my uh, perspective going in to the whole charismatic debate. Also, dealing with eschatology, uh, I would be coming from a historic premillennial position, uh, agreeing with theologians like George Ladd, uh, Russell Moore, uh, Al Mohler, Blomberg, for example, is another uh, type of author that would go that way. Also, Spurgeon and John Gill, maybe some notable uh, premillennialists in the camps. But uh, when you're dealing with the whole um, eschatological issue there, a historic pre-mill would also deny a pre-tribulational rapture. And so I would be coming from more of a post-tribulational rapture position. I think that the rapture, second coming, seem to take place synonymously. But here there's also a divergence in camps. There's the premillennial camp, there's the amillennial camp, there's the post-millennial camp. Now, the, the amillennial camp uh, versus the premillennial camp would, uh, would believe that, uh, that we are actually in a period uh, which is a, a, a general period of time that the Bible referred to as a thousand years, but that that thousand year period of time was not to be taken literal, 
but it actually is a figurative period of time in which we are in now. The amillennialist also believes that when Christ returns, there will be no literal thousand years, but that Jesus will set up his kingdom, uh, Jesus would, would come, return, and instead of setting up a literal thousand-year kingdom, the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth would commence. In a similar way, the post-millennialist would also see the thousand-year reign of Christ as a figurative thing, taking place figuratively, spiritually, definitely, in the hearts of, of, of God's people. So all millennialism and post-millennialism being very close in that both of them do not take the, the thousand years as a literal period of time. Uh, what separates all millennials from post-millennials is the way that they see the, the future unfolding. So welcome to, the, welcome, to the, welcome to the club. I mean, that is the controversy that sort of pretty much separates everybody is how does the future unfold? In a post-millennial scheme, the world will proceed to a, a, a great triumph of the Christian church that is before Christ returns. So before Christ returns, post-millennialists expect that the church will rise triumphantly, that it will rise above the cultures and religions and governments of the world, and that will, in a sense, have a position of, of, of preeminence or, or, or that it will be in a position of triumph. Now, the amillennialists tend to have a more pessimistic view. So the premillennialists and the amillennialists both would tend to share in that idea, G.K. Beale himself, a, a, a post, uh, an amillennialist from Westminster, for example, G.K. Beale has stated that he does believe in a future tribulation, and he even believes in a future coming Antichrist. And so there are some similarities to premill and amill, both believe in a, uh, a pessimistic unfolding of the future, whereas postmillennialists tend to believe in a more of an more of a uh, optimistic unfolding of the future. So postmillennialism te tends to shy away from talking about some cataclysmic judgment at the end of, of time uh, that that ushers in, and by judgment I mean that ushers in persecution, widespread global persecution of the church, things like that. And so on that spectrum, I am more on the premillennial side of things. However. I would not be a dispensational premillennialist. I would be a historic premillennialist, and that's where more or less I would be coming to. And um, I, I'm open on on the, the the issue of eschatology because being a tertiary issue, I do believe that I can be persuaded by Scripture to a different position, and so I am open to continue to study that out. Um, maybe some more theological positions which will inform the way that I do systematic theology would be that I am coming from a complementarian position, meaning that men have um, a role in the church that is different from women, that women, although equal with men in every way ontologically, functionally, they are not equal in that God has designed and appointed different roles for women in the church. Men are alone to be the leaders of the church. Men alone are called to be the pastors overseers, and I would even say deacons of the church, uh, and that women play more of a complementary role to men's, to male leadership. I think that's what you see throughout scripture. That is really the emphasis. I'm also Baptist, and so I do believe in a Baptistic uh, a vision for uh, ecclesiology. I, that also informs not only the way we execute 
Um, the the uh, the ordinance or sacrament of baptism being uh, uh, a credo Baptist believing that only those who are genuinely saved, or at least that have a genuine or a valid and a, a, a legitimate viable profession of faith, are candidates for the sign of baptism. And so there, I would disagree with my Presbyterian brothers and um, and and. Uh, also, I possibly under the Baptistic heading or umbrella, I would also believe in the autonomy of the local church. So that would be kind of counter a Presbyterian model for church government, which uh, all of those ecclesiastical things we will, Lord willing, have time to get into a bit more as we study these things out. Um, but uh, <clears throat> uh, moving forward, uh, just approaching Scripture, I think it's important to see that on a hermeneutical level, the way that Scripture is to be approached, at least the way that I'm approaching the Word of God, it's not just enough to say, well, we're going to come to the Bible, and we're going to pull from every aspect of the Bible, uh, even if uh, many of the things that are presented in Scripture have nothing to do with other parts of Scripture. And so, and so in that sense, uh, systematic theology engages in what's known at times as proof texting almost to a fault because it doesn't take a, it doesn't take into account I don't believe sufficiently the unity of scripture and what I mean by that is under a hermeneutic that is redemptive and historical redemptive and historical so I will be approaching Scripture from more of a redemptive historical approach. And this assumes also the grammatical historical approach. But I would leave out the word literal, for, and I would substitute the word literal for literary. So grammatical, historical, literary approach to Scripture. I think that what that does is it allows... In the hermeneutical uh, 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 enterprise, it allows us to let the Word of God be appreciated for all of its encyclopedic character that it exhibits. All of the genres of Scripture that are represented, let's say, in the Bible, apocalyptic literature, parabolic literature, didactic literature, poetic literature, historical narrative literature, all of these different types of genres of scripture have to be carefully taken into account. I think the redemptive historical approach definitely does that. Um, <clears throat> so moving on from some of the presuppositions, therefore, of systematic theology, let's move on now to um, the usefulness of systematic theology. If systematic theology is a legitimate science, then it should be useful for us. And when we talk about the usefulness of systematic theology, that means that systematic theology is concerned with educating the church on major doctrines of Scripture. And for that reason, it is a very useful theology. It is very useful take the texts of Scripture, to take the various books of the Bible in, in its, in its um, original, historical, uh, exegetical meaning, 
And then to organize that data, that information, in such a way that it informs the major doctrines of the Christian faith. So, for example, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Word of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of eschatology. All of these doctrines, therefore, are to be informed by all of Scripture and in systematic theology, what we're doing, therefore, is we're taking Scripture. In order to, for, for us to, to do systematic theology well, we want to go to the whole counsel of God, as we'll see. But for this reason, systematic theology is concerned with an analytical approach to the Bible. That is to say that all of the various books of the Bible help to inform and then to analyze various subjects, various topics, various doctrines of the Christian faith in light of Scripture. It brings the whole Scripture to bear on any given subject. One great example is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible is therefore scanned and analyzed in order to inform our understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That will bring up issues like the Spirit's role in the Old Testament. Many Christians are confused as to the involvement and to the explicit engagement upon which the Holy Spirit dealt with people in the Old Testament. Was his economy different? And ontologically, was there any difference in the way it, the Spirit operated in the soul of man? In the Old Covenant, let's say, versus the New Covenant. All of those things can be informed by systematic theology. Now, biblical theology, which is uh, to introduce a different branch of theology, biblical theology, like systematic theology, also assumes the coherence, the unity, the harmony, and the divine authorship of Scripture. That is to say that the Bible, at the end of the day, only has one ultimate author. Paul is not the author over all of the books of the Bible. He didn't guide the process that gave us the writings, let's say, of the prophets. But that divine authorship is what biblical theology is concerned with. It is concerned with approaching the scripture based on a synthetic approach that means that scripture synthesizes uh, uh, theology and according to all of the various aspects of scripture itself. So biblical theology of the New Testament and all of the themes in there would be for example, one of the attempts to synthesize Scripture would take all of the themes in the New Testament and it would analyze those themes from a biblical theological point of view. Also, there's also been biblical theologies of the Old Testament and all of the Old Testament themes. For example, themes like the, the, the creation or the new creation, uh, themes like the promised land, themes like the promise to Abraham, or the covenants, etc., etc. So, biblical theology is also concerned with attempting 
to identify the manner in which Scripture is unfolding throughout all of redemptive history. That's very important. Because unlike systematic theology, biblical theology in a synthetic way sees that all of the books of the Bible are not their own compartmentalized units of thought. They are that. But there is, there is this intra-information. In other words, there is this penetration, book to book, historical epoch into historical epoch of time. And that those things, uh, 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 they bridge the gap between one another and inform each other in a synthetic fashion. And so that would just be one, um, uh, one of the things that we could point out in terms of the usefulness of systematic theology and there how it compares with biblical theology. But now when you get to the source of systematic theology, having looked at some of the presuppositions and some of the usefulness of it and how we use it, it may be good for us to contemplate what is the source of biblical theology. Historically speaking, there have always been competing views that fall short of what Scripture claims for itself. There you see again that we're operating based on an evangelical presupposition of the Word of God, that it is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God that exhibits a divine authorship and a divine unity, but that many of the competing views have fallen short to what Scripture claims for itself. And um, in that sense, you can think of Roman Catholicism, which has mingled Scripture with tradition, and that tradition and Scripture are sort of on the same plane of thought and ultimately are a authority that we can derive a biblical truth from, divine truth from both Scripture and tradition. And so the Roman Catholic concept of theology is therefore to be rejected as insufficient and contrary to what Scripture itself teaches. And also, uh, another maybe another competing view, historically speaking, would be that of neo-Orthodoxy neo and liberalism. Now, when you're talking about neo-Orthodoxy, you're talking about Karl Barth mainly, that according to Karl Barth, Scripture is not objectively inspired. Rather, uh, for Bart, the Bible becomes the inspired Word of God through subjective experience. That is, through the Holy Spirit's operation on the soul and on the mind of man. And therefore, this ultimately ends up being a, an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture, the objectivity of Scripture, which really reduces the source of theology to less than what Scripture teaches. So once again, you have a deficient source of theological truth. And Scripture itself, as God's Word, teaches that the Word of God is a Word that has come to us from another world, that it is a, a Word that is objective outside of us, divinely inspired and embedded with God's authority, whether man recognizes that authority or not. It is independent to us. It is extra nos outside of us, in other words, just like the doctrine of 
the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is also that Latin phrase, extra nos, outside of us. So we cannot change the nature of what Scripture is simultaneously because Scripture does not change its nature based on what man is. Uh, moving on from there to maybe more of a classic liberal example would be somebody like Rudolf Boltmann. Rudolf Boltmann's approach, an old German uh, higher critic that also denied the, uh, the, the inspiration, ultimately the divine authorship and the sufficiency of Scripture to do theology, Boltmann's approach to interpreting the Bible was also lacking because for him, Scripture is a mixture of both historical fact and also mythical, to use his words, mythical claims, miraculous and supernatural claims that for Boltmann really have no basis in history and really have, has nothing to do with doing theology proper. But for Boltmann, the, the idea or the aim or the goal of approaching the Bible and trying to get some theology out of the Bible, one had to do what he called a process of demythologizing the Bible. The Bible and uh, had to be, for him, demythologized. Uh, one, one has to do that and have a subjective experience, kind of like Bart would say, one has to have an, a subjective experience with its supernatural claims, although historically they may not even have happened. In the end, Boltmann would deny the, histor the historical Jesus and the resurrection, claiming only that the central message, or what he liked to, the, the catchphrase he used was the kerygma of the Bible, and that that alone was what was necessary for having true faith in God. This again is contrary to the Reformed concept of the three aspects of saving faith, believing also in the historical facts of the gospel. And so with that, Rudolf Boltmann, as well as a deficient source for theology. And then going on from neo-orthodoxy and liberalism to another tradition of theology known as existentialism. Now here I have two uh, men pre uh, predominantly in mind. One, uh, Friedrich, Friedrich uh, Schleiermacher, and the other one is Soren Kierkegaard. Now Schleiermacher was also, who's also known as the father of modern liberal theology, Schleiermacher believed in personal feeling as the highest plane of self-consciousness and truth. He saw theology or dogma as not absolute true, or not absolutely true, but only temporarily true, only, or excuse me, only temporary notions of belief, the way that it has been phrased. phrased. According to Schleiermacher, theology is neither possible nor important since what is most important is how you feel about reality and not about what is objectively real because ultimately for Schleiermacher, objective reality or metaphysics was untenable, unknowable, unknowable. So for him, 
uh, he could not arrive at a position that gave you absolute truth. And so again, for him, the subjectivity, the inward feeling, as he liked to use that word, uh, feeling, uh, the self-consciousness of truth gave supremacy over scripture. And therefore, again, Schleiermacher had a deficient view uh, for his source of theology. And ironically, Karl Barth was the greatest opponent to Schleiermacher and his liberal views, particularly dealing with supernatural miracles. But yet both of them have deficient views of Scripture. And the result is, again, a source of theology less than what Scripture claims for itself. Now, maybe one more existentialist, and that would be Soren Kierkegaard. While Schleiermacher, often called the father of liberalism, Kierkegaard is known as the father of existentialism. There are some competing opinions on that, but ultimately for Kierkegaard, a person's subjective notion is what is true. And in the final analysis, the truth of something like scripture cannot be ultimately known. The result is a hopeless fideism where where faith is based on only one's personal subjective experience and reason, or what he liked to entitle passion. You see how these uh, various approaches to theology uh, came up with their own personal buzzwords of Boltmann. It was the charisma for Schleiermacher. It was the feeling for Kierkegaard. It was passion. Passion. Now, the problem, of course, is that it leads to an epistemological crisis. Epistemology just being the study of how you know things, how you know anything. So epistemological crisis where one's subjective experience and a fideistic faith also is untenable. Believing something a priori, believing something without any contributing or realistic facts that confirm what you feel, what you think, what you believe. And this is uh, obviously... Uh, something that is, in, that is uh, when compared to Scripture, uh, definitely deficient to and, and uh, inferior to what the Bible would teach on Scripture. One text, for example, would be Hebrews chapter 10. When you hear the philosophy, when you hear the existentialism of some of these men, the existential notions of interpretation, when you, when you hear that metaphysics is untenable, that metaphysics is, is futile, uh, then you come to a scripture like Hebrews 10 that says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And so Hebrews 10.22 says, full assurance of faith. Verse 23, without wavering. And so that is how we should uh, contrast Scripture and these deficient views of Christian thought and Christian theology so that the only reliable source for theology is scripture. Now, let's move forward then to the biblical case for systematic theology. Systematic theology. 
The Bible expects us to connect the dots. It assumes that Scripture is a coherent, unified book that speaks with one holistic voice, homogenous voice, so that whether we are approaching the Bible analytically or synthetically, the result will always be unity if we have done our theological and exegetical investigation faithfully. For example, you have in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul declaring that he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God, so that he sees the faith, the, the, the gospel, he sees the message that he was, in, he was uh, a privileged and obligated to proclaim in a holistic view, with a holistic sense, the whole purpose of God. And also Jude 3 says, speaks about the faith that has been once and for all delivered unto the saints. The faith that has been delivered to the saints. So that articular use of the word faith is stressing more than personal faith. It stresses more than just the faith that a person has on their own. But this is talking about the faith in a technical sense. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, you also have uh, Paul talking to Timothy, telling him to guard what was entrusted to him, or guard the deposit, is another way the ESV would have that translation. And what is that deposit? What is that sacred trust that has been entrusted to the apostles and to their associates and to the church, ultimately? What is that sacred trust but the gospel, the whole faith, the whole counsel of God, the whole teaching of the word of God and the purpose of God ultimately revealed and climaxed and and brought to a climactic point in Jesus Christ. That is what the deposit is. It is the gospel. It is the unfolding of God's mind. It is the mysteries of God unfolded. Uh, Paul tells uh, the Corinthians that it is required as a, a, a stewards of God, that they are stewards, rather, of the mysteries of God, that they were to be regarded as stewards of the mysteries of God. And also in Acts 2.42, one of the most basic and yet most fundamental passages in all of Scripture dealing with the nature of the Christian church, it says in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And so there was the need for a synthesizing of what all, I mean, right there you've got 12 apostles, you've got people teaching different things, all, of course, in harmony with one another, but yet distinct, so that you have Peter struggling through the writings of Paul because some of the things that Paul said himself were difficult to understand, and but yet you have this harmonizing going on that all of the different parts of Scripture were unified and spoke with one voice. Maybe a broader sweep of the whole panoply of Scripture would be Luke 24, verse 44, and this coming from the, the mouth of, 
of our Lord Jesus himself when he said that it was written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, everything that had to be fulfilled by him. He says, all of the things that were written about me. There you have all of the divisions of the Old Testament, which means the entire Old Testament wrote or informed one doctrine, that is Christology, messianic identity of Jesus, the messianic ministry of Jesus. And so scripture calls us to both analytically and synthetically bring about a unified presentation of the word of God through some sort of theological process and here through systematic theology. Now, where are we going to be? We're going to be in these different sections of scripture. And what I've done here is I have taken Wayne Grudem's basic outline, his table of contents, also along with uh, Louis Burkhoff. Now, Burkhoff was the first to lay the groundwork for all of these points. I think Grudem just made them a bit more uh, standardized, a little bit easier, accessible. And that's one of the reasons why I really like Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Even to this day, I think it's still my favorite because he, 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 he breaks everything down to such a, such a, on a, such a pastoral level. Now, I disagree with Grudem on many finer points, but in terms of the way that he has structured and outlined his systematic theology, I think he has done uh, uh, something very good. So we're going to begin, we're going to look at the Bible in seven parts. We're going to deal with the doctrines of the Word of God or revelation. We're going to deal with the doctrine of God, so theology proper. We're going to deal with the doctrine of man, so dealing with anthropology. We're going to deal with the doctrine of Christ, Christology, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. That will be one chapter together. And then, part five, we're going to be dealing with the doctrine of the application of redemption. That's a different part of, and that will open up the whole discussion of, of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And we're also going to deal with the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology. And we're going to deal finally with the doctrine of the future, talking about eschatology. Those are parts of systematic theology. But each one of those parts informs a myriad of doctrines beneath subpoints, subheadings underneath each one of those parts that needs to be considered. And perhaps we should close with um, the timeless words of one of the finest systematic theologians that ever wrote, that is uh, Louis Burkhoff. This is what he said. He said, There is a widespread and decided opposition to the idea that man must lead his thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and must in his search for the truth respecting God and man, sin and redemption, life and death, base his thought on the word, authority, the word of authority, the inspired word of God, rather than on the discoveries of fallible human reason. Our next study, we will look at the doctrine of revelation and see why it is so necessary for man's reason to be informed, to be informed by the word of God.